getting rid of the plants is what made a the massive, massive difference in my health. On this week's podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Anthony Chafee. He is an MD. He's currently doing a neurosurgery residency in Perth, Australia. And what's really cool about this is that Dr. Chafee has been talking about a carnivore diet for years now. He first experienced this many years ago and then came back to talking about a carnivore diet in the last few years and has been beating the drum on this and helping a lot of people. He and I agree on concerns regarding vegetables and plant foods. We disagree on some things like fruit and fruit juice, but we were able to have a really incredible, respectful discussion in this podcast, and it was awesome to connect with him for the first time. His story, what he talks about with regard to plants, I think will help a lot of people. It'll help, I think, reinforce some of the things that I've said for you guys to hear a different perspective, and you can hear our slightly different but mostly similar perspectives on health beyond meat and organs and animal foods. So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Anthony Chafee. I'm super grateful that he came on the podcast and hopefully have him back soon. Also want to give a shout out to my sponsors of this podcast who make this free podcast possible. I want to start with sacredhunting.com. This is my buddy Monsel who takes people on incredible hunts, but they're not just any hunts. On these hunts, you'll learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, and field dress wild game animals. And with Monsel, there's an added ritual and Native American component that make it a rite of passage. It's a transformative experience. I've been on two hunts with Monsel, one with a bow for deer and one with a rifle for black buck antelope. The people that come on these hunts, the food that Monsel serves, the way that he curates these hunts is really unique. So if you're thinking about getting into hunting, check this out. There's six spots available on each hunt. So go to sacredhunting.com, fill out the two-minute application, set up an exploratory call. Paul Saladino, MD, podcast listeners, save $250 on their trip by mentioning my name. And like I said, Monsel's done over 54 in-person experiences. They're clearly transformative experiences for people, and I would fully recommend this. Go to sacredhunting.com and check it out. Talk to Monsel. Get hunting. Get out in the wilderness and experience how to actually procure your meat. also want to give a shout-out to my friends at Merrick Health. You can find them at MerrickHealth.com, M-A-R-E-K, health.com. What's awesome about Merrick is they're the premium telehealth company out there, and you can both work with a provider that will be suited to your interests, will not just be trying to push drugs on you, but will be helping you optimize hormones, recovery, your athletics, or you can just order your own blood work through them. I love the democratization of blood work that is happening right now. And you can get 10% off your order of blood work at MerrickHealth.com. Use the code Paul for 10% off. I appreciate Merrick so much that I designed a Carnivore MD panel with Merrick that is sort of just the most cost-effective but hard-hitting set of labs you could get. It's as low as $243 before the discount. Understanding what's going on with your labs, your hormones, this is critical. I mean, I talked to Dr. Anthony Chafee about this in this podcast. He said he recently got blood work. I get my blood work every three to six months. It's been instrumental in understanding my health, whether it's testosterone, sex hormone binding globulin, fasting insulin, your lipids, inflammatory markers, other metrics that you wanna follow. It's, it's critical to know these things. And Merrick allows you to order this on your own or work with a provider who's really aligned with you in terms of paradigm to optimize your health overall. I think that our medical system has kind of gone off the rails and this idea of telehealth is, is the answer for most of you. So check them out, MerrickHealth.com, M-A-R-E-K, health.com. Again, use the code Paul for 10% off your first lab order. Check out that Carnivore MD lab panel and let me know what you guys think of this. I appreciate them very much. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Juve. J-O-O-V-V.com. That's two O's and two V's. 
And if you don't know about Juve, you must've been living under a rock. They make the best red light devices in the business. They've been doing it forever. They are the originators, guys. You guys know that I take my health super seriously. Light is critical. Light is critical. Getting red light, this changes the way our cells work. It changes our mitochondria, which actually have receptors for light, cytochrome C oxidase. These things on your mitochondria are affected by light. A lot of us are stuck in buildings where we're forced to sit under blue light, where we can't get out in the sun, which is why I think that in terms of biohacking, getting red light in your life is one of the best things you can do, and Juve can help you with that. I use my Juve before I go to sleep. It helps me calm down. People also use their juice for muscle recovery, skin benefits, collagen regeneration. It's pretty incredible stuff. And like I said, Juve is the originator. So go to juve.com, J-O-O-V-V.com. Uh, Juve is offering all my listeners an exclusive discount on their first order, J-O-O-V-V.com, front slash Paul. Use the code Paul on your qualifying order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply, but light will improve your health, guys. All right, on to the podcast. Anthony Chafee, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's good to have you here. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, man. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So for people that don't know your background, we were chatting before the podcast. Like, tell us a little bit about your story, about how you came to be interested in eating meat and how you came to the absurd conclusion that plants and vegetables are bad for humans, which I also agree with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so for me, it happened uh, quite some time ago. So I, I was taking my uh, prerequisite for, for medical school. I was taking cancer biology and botany and biology and we were just learning, you know, the different ways that, that, uh, you know, that plants could defend themselves by using specific defense chemicals. And obviously, you know, as you and your audience well know, this is, this is why you can't just eat any random plant when you get out lost in the woods. Most plants are inedible. Most plants will cause extreme illness or even death. Uh, on consumption of even a small amount of them. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the so-called edible plants are uh, devoid of these defense chemicals. It just means that we have more defenses towards those defense chemicals. So I was taking cancer biology at the University of Washington 20 some years ago, and we were going through you know, the nature of plants and how they use these defense chemicals. Uh, but because it was cancer biology, we were looking at it in, in the context of carcinogens. And we learned that Brussels sprouts at that time had already had 136 identified human carcinogens in them. And mushrooms had over 100, spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, all of these different vegetables that we would eat on a regular basis had dozens, if not over 100 known human carcinogens in them. Um, and so we were quite taken aback by that. I remember thinking like, this must be a joke. I was looking around wildly for like a TA snickering in the background or something like that and, and there wasn't one and it dawned on us that he was he was quite serious and so i remember thinking in my head i was like well but but you know vegetables are still good for you though right and and he just sort of looked at us and gave us this funny look and he said no i don't eat salad i don't eat vegetables i don't let my kids eat vegetables plants are trying to kill you and i was like right forget plants and i just automatically defaulted into just eating meat and eggs because that, that was it. That was anything. There was nothing else I could really find that I could eat. So I, I went through the grocery store. I was like, what am I supposed to eat? Everything has plants in it. I, my, my entire MO was just, I'm not going to eat plants. And so I just came across eggs and meat. And, and that's what I ate for uh, about five years. And then I was playing rugby in England. I sort of slipped off of that uh, because I didn't have the same access to meat as I did in America. Some of it was breaded and I just sort of 
basically convinced myself that a little bit wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And and as soon as that that crack in the dam opened up, a little bit more slipped in, a little bit more and a little bit more. And I was sort of back to eating a whole food meat-based diet, but with, you know, uh, plants and uh, bread and pasta and things like that as well occasionally. Um, I definitely felt a difference. I thought it, I just chalked it up to age. You know, I was in my my mid to late 20s now. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just over the hill. I'm just dying now. And, uh, you know, my athletic career is coming to an end. Um, but when I was in my late 30s, I came across uh, people such as yourself and and Sean Baker. And you guys were saying, hey, you know, you can just only eat meat. In fact, it's beneficial. And at first I sort of balked at that. I said, oh, well, that, that goes against everything you get taught. And but at the same time, you know, a bit of um, a voice of reason popped up in my head and said, well, you know, I basically did that for five years in my early 20s. And I, I, that was a period of my life I've never felt better in my life. And so I was like, OK, well, I'll look more into this. And the more I looked into it, the more I, I felt it like, no, this, there's really something to this. Just biologically, this is this is how we're supposed to eat. You know, we are animals and like all animals, we have an evolved diet and we do better on our evolved diet than, than uh, on something else. And uh, and so I was like, right, I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me and I just tossed them out of my my diet again. At that point, I was only I was only I was I'd, I'd been doing humanitarian work in Bangladesh and, and I just got back. And so I was trying to get back in shape for rugby. And so I was eating a very clean diet, as as people call it, just vegetables like uh, spinach, kale and broccoli. And I would blend those up and, you know, try to power it down. So bitter and I'm like fighting against every natural instinct to not drink this. Um, and then just some meat, like lean meat and then just dropping the greens and just eating a lot more meat. I ended up losing about 23 pounds in 10 days. And then stayed the exact same weight, but I just started shredding fat and stacking on muscle. My body composition changed dramatically, but I seemed to stay the same weight for several months. And I just felt so good at, you know, at 38 years old. I said, right, I'm going back and, and playing rugby. And I, I joined back up with my uh, team in Seattle, Seattle Saracens, who just uh, turned fully professional and, and um, joined the inaugural season of the MLR, the Major League Rugby um, League. And uh, as the Seawolves. So that was, that was the name of them. And so I started back and playing with them and, uh, and felt great. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I felt like I was back in my early twenties, you know, playing, playing high level rugby. Unfortunately, I hurt my knee that year, so I couldn't, couldn't finish out the season, but otherwise I, I felt absolutely amazing. And so since then I've just been digging into the research and trying to learn as much as I can about it and then try to relay that to people uh, so that they can use it in their own lives so that they can they can get healthy and they can get away from, you know, our our, our sick care system and actually get healthy and, and not be beholden on so many medicines <clears throat> and treatments and still suffer and die early. So that's really interesting <laughs> that you um, that you simply by cutting vegetables out of your diet. You lost 20 mm. pounds of of fat. Did you have any other like joint pain that improved or any other things that changed in your body? I mean, I'm sure losing 20 pounds of, it appears fat, that's, mm. that's, that defies like Western medicine, but did anything else in your body yeah. change? Did your joints feel better or mental clarity or anything else different? Yeah, completely got rid of all, all brain fog. Um, my asthma disappeared. I, I, you know, sort of struggled with asthma my whole life, especially as, as, uh, you know, as an athlete, that's something that, is, is difficult to contend with at gone basically. And, 
Uh, yeah, joint pains. I didn't have any any sort of aches and pains. I always had back pain since I was probably 15, and uh, now that's almost entirely resolved. I mean, I have I have injuries in my back. I'm sort of you know desiccated my L4 5 and L5 S1 since I was 20. I had an MRI at that point, and um, uh, but that's that's largely uh, uh, asymptomatic now. Um, I also for some reason oh, my my allergies improved dramatically, or what I, I previously thought were allergies, but probably was just me reacting to the different things I was eating. Um, my eyes were normally red all the time. I always looked like I was bloodshot. It, it would really bug me because like, you know, I don't drink during the rugby season. I don't smoke marijuana or anything like that. People always make jokes like, oh, are you high? Like drunk? Like what's going on? And it's like, no, actually asshole. Like my, my eyes are just red. I don't know what it is. And two weeks later, my, I had no, no redness in my eyes anymore. Um, athletically, I felt amazing. I had huge energy. So before that, I just felt tired and sluggish. I was, I was overweight. You know, I still sort of, you could still sort of see the, the, you know, the, the hints of, of a six pack, but I was like 200 and I was like 267 pounds, 270 pounds. And then in two weeks I was down to 243 and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure part of that was water weight and, um, you know, not all fat, but either way it was 23 pounds and I felt amazing afterwards. Before that, I was I was sluggish. I didn't feel great. I was trying to work out. I was trying to get better so that I could go back and play rugby. I was really interested in, in getting out and playing that year. And and I just didn't feel right. I was just like, no, I'm going to need more time in the gym. I'm going to need to you know hit the road more and, and get in better shape before I go out uh, to, and, and actually start training uh, with the team again. Two weeks into this, I just felt so good. I had so much energy. I'm like, I'm, I'm ready to go. And, and so two weeks after I started this, really just dropping vegetables and eating more meat. I went out to the practice, uh, to training with the, the Seawolves and the Saracens, and they'd been training for months while I'd been away. And I hadn't really played a full season in three years, but I was able to go, you know, full speed, dead sprint the whole time, even though I was very out of shape. And I was able to keep up with everybody, even though they were in much better shape than I was purely because of, uh, of my diet. And uh, that's the only thing I can, I, I can credit it to. We did a fitness test a few weeks later. And so I had a few weeks of training. I've been up sort of a month, month, five to six weeks on, on just the, the meat only diet. And, and at that point I actually finished quite high in our, it's a sort of called modified bleep test. It's just a fitness test. You're just sprinting back and forth during relays until you basically just can't do it anymore. And I finished quite high up. I was, I was in sort of the top five or 10 out of 90 players. And I was, you know, I'd only been training for a few weeks. So it was, it was dramatic. Um, it was a dramatic difference in my athleticism and my energy levels uh, as well. It's such a cool, it's such an interesting, cool story. I mean, I, I think that one of the things that I hear the most from people when they cut out vegetables and essentially every person, a hundred percent of people I talk to who are new to these ideas are surprised when I suggest mm -hmm. cutting out vegetables and by vegetables, I'm talking about things like leaves and stems and roots and seeds of plants. So nuts and grains and beans and seeds, these are all vegetables as opposed mm -hmm. to the fruit. So I think of fruit and vegetables, and we'll talk about fruit later in the podcast. But um, when I suggest cutting out vegetables to people, the first thing they say is that's crazy. We've been mm -hmm. told vegetables are good for us for so long. And it's just kind of in the zeitgeist. It's in the it's in our programming as humans. I mean, almost everyone's mom forced them to eat vegetables. I was forced to eat vegetables as a kid. It's in our programming. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I hear most 
when people do cut out vegetables is that their joint pain improves. And that aches and pains, little tennis elbow or arthritis or a shoulder that was weird or a knee that was funny or neck pain, like the aches and pains and the joint things improve almost invariably (laughs) when people cut out vegetables, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it and you think about the defense chemicals. And maybe we'll talk about some defense chemicals in this podcast. Specifically, I'm thinking about oxalates that could accumulate in joints. But I still, in my messaging in the mainstream stuff, I still say to people, hey, look, if you're thriving, don't change anything about your diet. And I even did content on social media last week and said, hey, look, if you're crushing it and you want to eat vegetables, go ahead and eat vegetables. I think there are bigger problems for most people than vegetables. These are processed foods, seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, sucrose, processed sugar. I think these are bigger problems than vegetables. But what's so interesting is that in your story, this is kind of illustrated that when you were, when you were doing these things, you were not eating a processed food diet and cutting out the vegetables mm. improved your health even from there. Is that true? Oh, oh, absolutely. No, I, I've never been processed food sort of person. My mom cooks every meal that we had as kids I and mean, cereal, you know, that sort of thing we'd have. But other than that, we, we had we had cooked meals. Um, and uh, my mom is an amazing cook. And as we all learned how to cook from her. And so when I moved out, I was I was always cooking my own meals. I didn't I never got ready made meal. I mean, occasionally you grab something out of convenience, but predominantly the vast majority of what I ate was, was whole foods. And so I was eating, I would get, you know, chicken or beef and I I never really did much pork, but just out of preference, but you know, then I'd make a salad, you know, with, with, uh, you know, mixed greens or lettuce or spinach and spinach was supposed to be really great. And so I, I made a lot of spinach salads and um, I'm just never really big into carbs, like bread and things like that. But every now and then I'd, I'd have a bit of pasta. Mostly what I was doing was, was uh, just meat and, meat and veg. That was pretty much it. And then, uh, you know, but if I was at, if I was at somewhere and they had, you know, uh, you know, bread or pasta, I would always have some, uh, except for that sort of five years. But yeah, so when I was, when I was back from Bangladesh, exclusively what I was eating was vegetables, green, leafy green vegetables. And uh, and meat and lean meat. I was trying to trying to cut back on the meat. I figured I'd have as much vegetables as I could stomach, and um, and then I and I trimmed down on the meat. And I was trying to lose weight. I was trying to trim up and get and get healthy and get in shape. And I figured you do that by you know starving yourself of nutrients and uh, and just eating the vegetables because that's what we're told. You know, we're told that that's where the nutrients are. That's the most nutritious thing. Meat's bad. Meat will make you fat. Meat will slow you down. And so I was trying to do the opposite of that. And it, and it, and it did the opposite of what it was supposed to do. And so when I went counter to that, I felt absolutely amazing. You know, just, just getting rid of, and I, I, that was a lot. I mean, I mean, if you think about all the things that are in, in kale and spinach and broccoli, and I was having a lot of this stuff. So I'd make a big smoothie container. I'd just pack this stuff in with, with, uh, leafy greens and put water in it. And it tasted wretched. I mean, it was just vile. It was so bitter. You, know, you really couldn't stomach this stuff. And, uh, and that, I mean, I, I think that really should tell you something. I mean, if something is, is bitter and horrible and every instinct in your body is telling you to spit it out naturally, you should probably spit it out. That, that is telling you something biologically. And so, uh, you know, I, I eventually listened to that 
And, um, you know, thankfully, thankfully got back on track. But yeah, it felt absolutely amazing. Like no processed food, no, no. I mean, I was in a refugee camp, you know, for, for a couple months. And like, there was no, pro- well, there was, that's the crazy thing. There is processed food available in rural jungle Bangladesh. Like you go through these little markets and they have the bananas and they have the, all the natural sort of things. But they also have racks of Ruffles potato chips. And, and gummy bears and things like that. And I was just like, what is happening? They don't have shoes, but they have ruffles and gummy bears, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so it was, it was pretty shocking. But, you know, what I was eating was what was, was being prepared, um, you know, for us and things like that. It was, it was all whole food. So, yeah, I didn't go from like a heavily processed garbage diet uh, to then say, oh, well, well that's what's happening. You, you got rid of processed food and and therefore there's an improvement which you know you can make that argument and a lot lot of vegans do make that argument against us i would make that argument towards them that they go from a processed food (laughs) oreo cookie diet to you know whole food plant-based approach and and they're going to get improvement but i was i was doing whole foods i was doing whole plants and getting rid of the plants is what made a the massive massive difference in my health profoundly effective check out this review on whole package from Heart and Soil Supplements. This is our grass-fed, grass-finished, freeze-dried organ supplement that contains testicle, liver, and blood. This stuff will change your life. After taking the organ and whole package supplements for four months, my body has greatly improved. I have new levels of strength and endurance, along with muscle size and vascularity increases. My libido is through the roof and my energy levels have improved immensely. I didn't understand exactly what I could potentially gain from these supplements when I started, but it's nothing short of miraculous. Dr. Saladino and the Heart and Soil team are the truth in a world of health misinformation and confusion. So many thanks to them. You can find all of our supplements at heartandsoil.co. That's .co. And again, whole package contains grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised testicle, liver, and blood. We know that testicle contains bioactive androgens. All of the supplements at Heart and Soil are informed sports certified, which means they're tested for no contaminants, and they all passed except whole package, because this contains naturally occurring androgens, testosterone, androstenedione, other testosterone and androgen derivatives that occur in testicles. So we know that testicles contain bioactive hormones for humans, and it's pretty hard to get testicles. So this is why I'm super excited about whole package. You can find it at heartandsoil.co. That's .co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical health. And of course, all of our supplements are in glass because plastic is bullshit. You don't need more of that in your life. So there's another side to this equation. It's interesting you brought up plant-based diets and vegan diets. And um, I want to I want to talk about this for a moment. There, there are people in the plant, there, I respect people in the plant-based community. I've made that very clear in the past. I was recently on with Russell Brand and he's a vegan. And I said clearly on Russell Brand's podcast that I think that um, being a vegan is a great first step. Um, it's an intentional dietary choice, which is better than, just not being intentional about your diet at all. So being yeah. being vegan is a great first step. But I, I've kind of joked with my friends that I think being vegan is the first step to being animal-based or carnivore because yeah. so many people, they begin with a vegan diet because that's what the mainstream tells you is healthy. And that's great. That's your first intentional experiment with diet. You're cutting out processed foods. And then so many of those people end up adding meat back to their diet Many of them end up eating only animal products or animal products and fruit. And so I think that a vegan diet is the gateway drug to becoming animal-based or carnivore. 
But I heard, I heard someone who's plant-based say something the other day, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. He said that you see people who are carnivore, you see people who are animal-based, and they cut out plants or vegetables, and they get better, like you did. You get better from your symptoms. But similarly, there are vegans and plant-based advocates who cut out meat, and they get better. And so his contention was that it's not what you're eating, it's what you're not eating. It's the processed foods, which I think has a kernel of truth, but I have some problems with that. I'm curious what you think of that position that, that some vegans are starting to take. They're starting to say, hey, look, people on carnivore or animal-based diets get better, and people on plant-based diets gets better. So clearly the answer is just eating whole foods, and you can eat as many plants as you want or as much... I don't think they would be excited about you eating meat, but we know that you could eat meat and organs and things would be healthy. But what, what do you think about that position? That it's 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 not what you're eating; it's what you're not eating. Well, I think it's I think it's partially correct. I mean, it certainly has to do. I think you know, and when I when I talk to people about doing like a you know a carnivore diet, I you know I talk to them about it's as important what not to eat as what to eat. You know, eating meat gives you the nutrients and the nutrition that you need. You need these things, but you also want to avoid things that are harmful for. So it's not good enough to just eat meat and, and you know, it's not, it's not good enough to, to run and exercise and eat healthy, but also smoke, drink and do drugs. You know, it's like, no, you have to avoid that stuff too. That that's bad for you. So yes, I agree that there are worse things on earth than uh, cabbage, but that doesn't mean that cabbage is optimal. Right. And so while you can improve, you can make improvements by, by going on a whole food plant-based diet compared to what you were doing before it's, it's all relative like any any economist will say like compared to what right so a vegan diet is good compared to what compared to a processed food garbage diet but a processed food garbage diet is largely plant-based anyway these are these are processed plants and seed oils and all these things that come from plants so it, it, you're, you're trading in better plant your know, worst plants for better plants people say that well these people get rid of meat and they do better but they don't get better I don't think they get better because they ditch meat. They they get better because, like you say, they're making intentional steps in improving their health. They're they're cutting out the Oreos and the cookies and the ice cream and the cake and the alcohol and the cigarettes, most of which are, are plant based, except maybe the cream and the ice cream. And um, you know, and then you know, but you can have a vegan diet. You know, Oreo cookies and heroin are vegan, right? So you could do that. You know, you could have a vegan diet that is that is that is entirely plant and drug based. And obviously you're not going to improve on that. So when I talk to people and they say, well, I improved on a vegan diet, I did so much better. So meat must be bad for me. They're, they're getting caught up on the, on the semantics. They're like, well, I say vegan, that means no meat, but what else did you change? Did you just keep everything else exactly the same and you only dropped meat and they say, oh yeah, yeah, I went vegan and I feel better. Okay. So you still drink, you still smoke, you go out to restaurants, you're eating, you're eating sugar, you're drinking sodas, you're having cookies, all these like, oh, no, 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 I only, I only cook for myself. I don't go to restaurants. I stop drinking. I don't smoke anymore. And, uh, you know, I cook all my food myself. It's all whole food. It's like, okay, so you, you've changed radically a lot of things that you're doing. Um, and also, you know, healthy user bias, you're more conscious about what you're doing and other sorts of things. A, you're putting your body be what you're doing with your life, your sleeping, your exercise, and all these sorts of things. So yes, you're going to improve. But I also see people from the vegan community have very serious health issues. Um, I think the statistic was 84% of, of 
uh, vegans, vegetarians end up eating, you know, returning to eating meat. And the, and the largest, um, you know, the most common reason given was for health reasons. They, it was detrimental to their health and they, and they had to add in back meat. Um, and I, I see that a lot. I see a lot of former vegans and vegetarians that have, have uh, really hurt themselves. They've done everything right, you know, the right way where they've, uh, you know, just been doing whole foods and, and getting, um, you know, eating the rainbow and doing everything that they're supposed to. And they just get worse. And they get worse and worse and they say, okay, I, I need to start eating meat. And, um, and, they, and they improve when they do that. But I totally agree with you. I completely uh, agree with um, you know, the, the intentions of like, vegans. They want to do what's right for them. They want to do what's right for the planet. They want to do what's right you know, ethically, morally, and ecologically, but also uh, you know, for their health as well. I, I agree with all of those intentions. And I think that those are very well-placed intentions. And so I have a lot of time for people and I, and I like talking to them because we, we share the exact same motivations. I want to do what's right for me. I want to be as healthy as I possibly can. I don't want to, you know, stomp all over, you know, animals and horribly hurt them. And, you know, these big, nasty, you know, factory, uh, you know, pig farms in, in China and things like that, where they, they have horrible conditions for these animals. I don't like that. I don't, I don't agree with that. And, uh, you know, environmentally, like, I don't think we should be trashing the environment in the world. I just think that there are, are other ways of doing it that are better and end up, end up being better for us as well. So I completely commiserate with them and their intentions, um, you know, but we just sort of went to a different angle. As a, a friend of mine, Dr. Tony Hampton, who I saw at a, at a conference recently, and he said that he was plant-based. He was like vegan vegetarian for like eight years. And he said that, hey, you know, you, you got you to gotta sort of have common ground with these guys because, you know, they were trying to improve their health. They were trying to do something that benefited their, their life and their health. And they started looking around and, and, and seeing information and they got caught up in the plant-based side of things. And, you know, and they started going to conferences like the one we were at and they say they're very convincing. They're just as convincing as, as these conferences. And you can be very caught up in that. And he said that he was caught up in that. And eventually he sort of, you know, saw the truth, the fact that you really do need meat and predominantly meat and some of these plants that we're eating are harmful to us. But he says it's very, uh, it's very confusing and it's very convincing. And that, you know, but we do share that commonality. We are trying to do what's right for us and the planet. And, uh, and so I have, a, I have a lot of, I have a lot of common ground in that, in that regard. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. And when I hear people say this sort of thing, I also want to push back a little bit because I've seen so many vegans have health issues and that's a staggering statistic that 84% of vegans return to eating meat or animal products. And then the most often cited reason is health issues. So if, if the majority of people who are returning to eating animal foods are having health issues because they stopped eating animal foods, we have a problem here. And when plant-based advocates who I respect and who I believe sort of claim to be thriving on only plants, I think you're either, you're either not telling the truth, so maybe I don't believe them completely, or you're an anomaly because there, there, are, there are pretty good statistics to corroborate the notion that the majority of people who eliminate animal foods from their diet develop health issues that require them, that require them to return to eating animal foods. And so that statistic is just crazy to me. And there is no similar... There is no mirrored statistic on the other side of the issue. For people that cut out all plants or vegetables, there is no statistic that 60% of them return to eating 
vegetables again because they have health issues. I would say 60 to 70 to 80% of them have significant improvements in their health when they cut out vegetables. I'm not, it doesn't go both ways. It's just a crazy, there's a, there's a really interesting asymmetry there um, that I think is important to point out. Now, you, um, you went back to medical school. I don't know if you mentioned that earlier that you went to medical school, you're an MD, and now you're in residency. I'm just curious what that experience was like going to medical school and being in a residency, a neurosurgery residency. I mean, like the people are, do you, do you let people know how you see the, the medical landscape or do you keep this close to your, do you keep your cards close to your chest? No, I'm, I'm pretty open. I'm pretty open with it. Yeah. So it was a bit of a broken, uh, broken stream. So I was, I went to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and I stayed there for a couple of years, but then when, when my folks were having health issues, I came, I, I left and went back to uh, Seattle and was helping my folks there. And then I got um, asked to, to help out with the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh. And so I, I went over there for a time. And, uh, and then when I was sort of a free agent, I was like, okay, well, where do I go? Do I want to come back to the US? Do I want to go back to Ireland? Do I want to go somewhere else? I had friends that were uh, doctors in Australia and they were like, look, it's amazing here. And I've always wanted to go to Australia. So I decided to go down there. So uh, yeah, so I, I joined up with the neurosurgical program in Perth, Australia. And, you know, that, that side of things, um, you know, it's just sort of separate, you know, because obviously, you know, someone comes down and crack their head open and, you know, you need to, you know, uh, do a craniotomy and, and evacuate the, the hematoma. Like that's, you know, that's completely separate to, to diet. But there are so many things that this does help with just, I mean, it just pain, you know, like the radiculopathy and you know, pinched nerves and things like that. We do like 60% of our surgeries are uh, laminectomies and decompressions of these uh, spinal nerve roots. And a lot of these people benefit I've seen in uh, from after starting a podcast and talking to people about that, that they've, they've significantly improved their symptoms and their pain uh, just by adopting uh, different dietary approaches. And so, and there are, and there are many more applications as well, but no, I've, I've always been uh, very vocal and it's very apparent as well when you're, you know, obviously, you know, you know, the, the hospitals run on coffee. And so when you're, when you're out to coffee, like, oh, let's get coffee, let's get coffee. And, and you go there and you're like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't drink coffee. I mean, that's like seen as a, as a big anomaly. And so people start asking questions. And so it came out pretty early that, you know, that I, I only eat this way, but because I was in shape and I was, you know, I was able to, you know, work crazy hours and not really be affected by it. People got more and more interested in it. And a lot of them started adopting the same uh, dietary approaches. Most of them are, are at least eating a lot more meat. Some of them went full carnivore. One, uh, one gentleman who is a neurosurgical resident with me um, uh, named Rudy, he, he was actually vegan and he was, his, he was Indian. So his family uh, were religiously, you know, plant-based but he was doing it for, for health reasons. He didn't feel good and he didn't feel great. So he was trying to go whole food vegan and he was just getting worse and he was getting worse and worse energy levels. He said that going up and down the stairs to the hospital, uh, at one point he had to start resting between stairs. He could only go up one, one floor at a time and he'd have to stop and rest. He was in his late twenties, you know, skinny guy. He wasn't overweight. And you know, he's, 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 he has, he doesn't have the energy to go up more than one flight of stairs at a time. And so obviously his health was suffering. And we ended up talking for about an hour and a half after, after a, a meeting one day um, on a Saturday. So we didn't have to, you know, uh, work that day. And, um, and he just got really interested in it. I started sending him 
different pieces of information and studies and he really dove into it and he went full carnivore after that just dumped all the plants and it is his, his health just revitalized itself he ended up going to the gym regularly he put on like 50 pounds of muscle in six months i mean he, he really really transformed his body and and just felt amazing so people have, have come to sort of know what i what i do and and uh, and what i think and i'll just have random people come up to me in the hospital and just start asking me questions about it you know i was down in the emergency department you know checking out a couple um couple patients down there and then you know one of the one of the ed docs just starts sitting down and starts just firing away it's like okay you know what about this and i had never talked to this guy about this before but he's just like was very interested in the whole the whole idea and um yeah so more and more people uh have become interested in that um you know from from my sort of my experience with it and everything I've talked about. So it's been very positive. Like a lot of my colleagues and everyone I come in, run into, they're very interested in it. They, they obviously see the benefits that, that I'm experiencing. They see some of my videos and they start going down the, the carnival rabbit hole and watching yourself and others. And they're like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And they try it and they, they find that it's really helpful. So I found it's, it's a uh, very positive. I get very positive feedback from people. Now, sometimes they'll be questioning you know, maybe challenging questions, but, you know, there's always answers for these things. And, and, um, when you talk to, when you talk to people about it, nurses and doctors, well, what about this? What about fiber? What about cholesterol? What about all these other things? And you have answers for them. Uh, they become more and more interested. So I found that it's actually, um, actually been pretty positive. And, uh, you know, a number of the, of the, uh, doctors in my, my department have, uh, actually gone carnivore. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Okay. So two questions. Number one, you don't drink coffee. That's amazing. I, I feel yeah. like I'm alone on a, on a planet of aliens. That don't drink coffee. Why don't you drink coffee? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I never really felt great uh, with coffee anyway. I figured it was because I had allergies, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's dust and, and well, you know, some coffees have, uh, you know, dust and mold buildup in them. Those are my two main allergies that I really don't do well with. And so I noticed that when I drink coffee, I actually got more lethargic. I got brain fog. I was not feeling great. And then I'd just be wired and jittery, but I, my brain wouldn't work properly. But if I took a caffeine pill, you know, then I, then I'd be off to the races. So I would, I, I tended to avoid coffee in any case, my intern year, I, I just had to do something. So I started incorporating coffee uh, just to survive because I was doing like 120 hour weeks. and you know, so I started drinking coffee then and, but I, ne I never really wasn't a huge coffee drinker after that, but I started doing, uh, drinking coffee before work. And, um, you know, then when I, when I started doing just, just the meat only, I remember like a couple weeks into it, I was thinking, I was like, okay, well, what about coffee? I haven't had coffee in several weeks. You know, let's see, let's see what this does to me. And so I just did, you know, some self experiments and I, and I had a cup of coffee and I started noticing my joint pain and muscle soreness. I, I wasn't getting sore after working out. That was that was a major major realization for me that that you know we're not supposed to get sore necessarily, and that it's sometimes these defense chemicals and this inflammation that they're causing can exacerbate and um, you know, worsen this this pain of soreness and stiffness that we get after exercise. And I wasn't getting that, and I felt great doing that. And then that was the that was the week that I went back and started playing rugby. And so I'd just been doing a lot of hard training 
sessions. And I said, okay, I'll just try one cup of coffee, see what happens. So I had one cup of black coffee and within 20 minutes, I started feeling my muscles get stiff and sore. And I was like feeling it in real time going like, Oh, what is happening? And I was sore for two days after that. And so I was like, okay, well, that's obviously doing something to me. That's obviously causing some sort of inflammation. And, and there's, you know, these same sort of chemicals in there that, that the plant, I mean, you know, coffee is a bean, bean is a seed, seed is a plant's baby. Like that, that's, it's going to be defending that part of the, the plant more than anything. And, you know, I certainly experienced that firsthand. And, um, it, you know, funny enough, I, I uh, impressed this sort of dietary lifestyles on, a, on an orthopedic surgeon that I, that I know. And, um, and we went to the gym together and we we're working out and he hadn't, didn't work out all that, all that often. And so I was taking through my workout and he'd been doing carnivore for a few weeks at this point. And uh, we were going really hard. And I was like, no, no, you got to push yourself. We're going, we're going hard today. And he said, well, you know, I'm operating tomorrow. I don't really want to, I don't want to be all sore when I'm operating. And I was like, well, you won't be if you're actually doing carnivore. And he's like looking at me all skeptically. And, and so he did it and he, he sort of said like, okay, well, you know, I, I'm interested. I'm really interested to see if I get sore. And I said, yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, how, how strict you are with the carnivore diet. You know, because if you have been, you're not going to get sore. So the next day he was telling me, he's just like, he's like, yeah, you know what? Like, I, 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 I hate to say it, but I'm not sore. And I'm actually, I, I wanted to prove you wrong. I want to say you're wrong. And this is bullshit. He's like, but I'm not, I'm not sore. This is, this is pretty amazing. Halfway through the day, we were all sort of in the break room and uh, a rep came by and got coffees for everyone. I, you know, I declined and he was sitting there and he drank this coffee. And, you know, after a while he's sitting there and he said, you know, I, I actually am a bit sore. I actually am a bit sore through my chest and arm. And I just pointed at the coffee cup and said, what are you drinking? And he's like, damn it. <laughs> and he's like, that'll do it. And he wasn't sore until he drank that coffee. So, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, you, you full well know, I saw your, uh, one of your videos on, you know, coffee's bullshit, which I totally agree. And, um, you know, that has that stuff in there and that has these different defense chemicals in there that are going to cause reactions in your body. And I certainly experienced that firsthand. And, and the people that I, I, I counsel and say, Hey, you know, just try it, try it, try coming off for 30 days, see how you do. All of them tell me they feel a lot better after. I think that that's such a good test in general to whether it's kale or spinach or almonds or coffee or, or whatever it is to, to cut it out of your diet for, 30 days or so and see how you feel. There's, you know, I know that later in this podcast, we're going to talk about fruit and fructose and we're going to disagree a little bit on that. And, and I've had okay. some friendly debates with Ken Berry and on, on fruit and fructose. And I think that ultimately, you know, most people are not really going to want to go super deep in the science. And I don't think that people should be persuaded by an argument with scientific literature. I think that the reason that, that one or both of us would share scientific literature with people for, you know, to, to recommend that they cut out coffee or vegetables or fruit or honey or any of these things um, is, is just to, to give them the, a curiosity and then to let them experiment with these things and to see how they feel. I think that's really the best experiment for people is to, I've always said that I want people to be curious. I don't want people to take what I'm saying at face value. I want people to question what I'm saying. I want people to do their own research. And I think the best test tube is the experience of your own life. And whether that's cutting out 
fruit or adding fruit back in or adding honey back in or cutting out honey or adding coffee back in or cutting out coffee or vegetables. I think if you do that, if I'm addressing the listeners now, if, if listeners do that, if you do that, I think over 30 days, most people will be able to tell how they react to that thing and whether they feel better or worse with it in their diet. And I think that's, that's ultimately what we're going for is just to make people curious enough that they can think for themselves and say, you know what, I do have some joint pain. Maybe I should cut out the spinach or the broccoli, or maybe I should try cutting out kale. Maybe I should eat less salads. <clears throat> you know, this is what I want people to do to have this, this power so that they don't have to really acquiesce to Western medicine for a medication. Yeah. I think that this, the, the coolest part about doing this work is the, the way that it can help empower people to be their own physicians and be their own healers and to understand that there are so many tools available to all of us and, and one of those biggest levers is how you adjust your diet and your lifestyle, but tweaking the diet in certain ways can be super powerful. And so that's such an interesting experiment for people. Cut, cut things out, add them back in, see how you feel. I think most people will feel better without coffee. It's just that whenever I say that, um, mm -hmm. half of the people stop listening to the podcast and uh, <laughs> uh, people, people get super triggered. So take it for what it is. I mean, if you guys are triggered, Maybe it's because you really do need to cut out coffee, but you know, whatever. If you don't, you know, if you're thriving and you feel great on coffee, whatever, keep drinking it. I just have problems with the mold toxins, like you're saying, with the pesticides, mm -hmm. with acrylamide in coffee, with anti-nutrients in the beans, in the coffee, with caffeine itself, which we know is going to influence sleep cycles negatively. I mean, the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours. It's basically impossible to drink caffeine at any point in the day and not have some caffeine affecting your adenosine receptors and changing your sleep architecture when you go to sleep that night, which is the reason that most people do it. It's just, I think chronically affecting your sleep architecture is a very bad thing for humans and, and will almost certainly lead to accelerated aging and um, early, early cognitive decline. The other question I wanted to ask you based on what you were saying about your experience in medicine was about LDL and cholesterol. A couple of weeks ago, I did a debate with a cardiologist who's mainstream Dr. Allo about LDL. Um, if people oh, are listening good. and you, you want to go back, yeah, people can go find that podcast on YouTube or wherever you're listening to this. So, the, so I have, it was over two hours of, of cordial, respectful discussion slash debate with this mainstream cardiologist. But when you get asked about cholesterol, I'm curious how you answer that because I think that's the biggest sticking point. Most people can say, I love the way steak tastes. I feel better when I eat meat. You know, people might say, I feel better when I eat organs. And my doctor tells me my cholesterol is going to go up with a saturated fat. And, and so that, that is the biggest sticking point because I've had so many people talk to me and say to me, Hey, I went to the doctor, everything in my labs gets better. I feel better, but my LDL got quote unquote worse. I mean, how do you, how do you unpack the cholesterol thing for other physicians and have you been successful at, at red pilling them? Oh, absolutely. I, I've yet to, uh, speak, you know, speak with a colleague or anything like that on cholesterol and and not have them come around because I, the, I think the evidence is there. Um, I, th I think that it, you know, it comes down to the fact that it was falsely accused in the first place. You know, LDL was a scapegoat used by the sugar companies. So, you know, so there were a lot of studies that blamed cholesterol falsely and they, they doctored their evidence, they doctored their studies, they doctored their data to make it appear as if cholesterol was a problem and to you know, hide, in this case, they were, they were hiding the correlation between increased sugar, you know, refined sugar and, and heart disease. And, and there's certainly strong correlations with seed oils as well and you know, processed foods in general. 
But you know, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a, uh, a paper from uh, a group of people at UCSF in 2016 uh, discussing or actually showing the actual internal memos from the sugar companies you know, decades ago, detailing how they paid off three Harvard professors to falsify data and publish fraudulent studies to make it appear as if cholesterol caused heart disease when it was, you know, when actually sugar was implicated, and then to exonerate sugar and say it was safe, it was just an empty calorie, and that you should, in fact, replace your fat and cholesterol calories with sugar because it's safe and neutral. One of those professors was named head of the USDA, and it was he who authored and published the 1977 USDA declaration saying that cholesterol caused heart disease or cholesterol caused heart disease, saturated fat increased cholesterol. And so get rid of both of them. And we listened to this as a society in America. And we said, uh, and, and people reduce cholesterol, they reduce saturated fat, reduce red meat, increase fruits and vegetables, increase uh, carbohydrates and sugar, certainly, as well as seed oils, high fructose corn syrup, inc consumption increased by over threefold, uh, seed oil consumption increased by over threefold as well. Of red meat decreased by over one third. A lot of that was replaced with chicken, but red meat in particular was reduced, saturated fat intake was reduced. And what happened? Well, the rates of heart disease tripled. And some people will say, and I've, I've heard the vegan argument that, well, actually, um, you know, deaths, cardiovascular related deaths, you know, peaked in the 60s and 70s, and actually have been coming down perfectly in, in relation to the, the lowering of cholesterol. That That is in intentionally misleading because we're not talking about cardiovascular deaths. We're talking about the prevalence. We're talking about the rate, the incidence, how many new people are having a first time heart attack per year that is going up. So our interventions are getting better. We have stenting, we have, you know, better open heart surgery. We have, you know, preventative sort of measures and, you know, someone comes in with a heart attack or a stroke, we can pull that clot out. We can give, you know, clot busting um, medications, which are, in and out of vogue, uh, depending on, on when you, when you look at them, but we can see people, you know, having, you know, angina and all of a sudden, okay, well, let's put some, you know, do a, a stress test. Okay. We'll slam in some, uh, some stents, some people, are, but more people are having first time heart attacks, but we're, they're surviving more as well. So the rates are going up. The prevalence is going up. The incidence is going up, not only in America, but around the world and around the world, the death rate is going, the cardiovascular death, uh, rate is going up as well. So just because our interventions are getting better, it doesn't mean that that heart disease is going away. It's actually getting worse. It's just we're better at treating it. And also smoking rates have come down significantly in America. And that's obviously also had a major role to play in, in deaths from cardiovascular disease. So, you know, I, I'm sure you were you were taught the Framingham study in medical school. That was, I think, the first three months of my medical education. Uh, we, we went over the Framingham study and they said, directly, well, this is, this is very conclusive proof of you know, cholesterol causing heart disease because in these people we studied for decades, the more, the higher their cholesterol level, the higher their level of cardiovascular death. Okay. Well, that's pretty straightforward. Correlation does not equal causation, but you know, you have a large body of people, tens of thousands of people followed for decades. Okay. Maybe there's something there. The problem with that is that that was a misrepresentation of the actual data. The, the, by the, the AHA. So the American Heart Association actually came out with that and said that that's what the Framingham study found. But in fact, the Framingham study showed that people who had lower levels of cholesterol had increased rates of cardiovascular death. So that was misrepresented. And then we obviously, we had Ansel Keys and others who we know were paid off 
by the sugar companies to to put out you know bastardized data and literature to to you know uh, promote their benefactor's product, which is sugar, and to vilify vilify cholesterol. And so there are a number of problems with all those studies. So I, I just go back to the beginning. You know, if you have someone who's who's you know falsely accused of murder and someone doctors up a bunch of evidence against them and you find out that that was fraud and those people framed him and set him up. You, you set that person free and you start over. You don't, you, you don't keep calling the person a murderer and keep them on death row. It's like, no, you have to let them go. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe they doctored evidence, but maybe they still did it. Okay. Well, you still call a mistrial, you scratch everything and you start over. And when you start over, you really don't see, um, you know, cholesterol being, uh, as indicated in, in, uh, uh, heart disease. Um, in fact, the Journal of the American College of Cardiology published in 2020 a large uh, literature review looking at meta-analyses and uh, RCTs and, and top-level evidence, and they found that there was no correlation, no association at all whatsoever with increased consumption of saturated fat and heart disease. And so they said there's no upper limit on the amount of saturated fat you can eat on, in, in regards to uh, heart disease. And they found, in fact, an inverse relationship between saturated fat consumption and stroke rates. So people that were eating more saturated fat were actually protected against stroke. And people who were eating less saturated fat were at higher risk of having a stroke. I think that's very significant. And I think that there are more and more studies coming out, especially in the last decade, that show not only a lack of association between LDL cholesterol and heart disease, but in some cases, an inverse relationship. And um, I, I forget the name of the study, but it was like it was like over 11 million people in this study, and they found that people that had higher LDL cholesterol, and, and not even taking consi to, to consideration the different particulates of LDL. There's over 100 different kinds of LDL, and you know, obviously, you know, some of the, the small, dense, damaged, or some of the large, buoyant, healthy ones that we make. So, not even taking that into consideration, but just anyone with just overall LDL at higher levels, they had lower all-cause mortality. So they're living longer. So people that have higher LDL cholesterol are living longer. There are other studies looking at um, people having a heart attack in America. And I think there was two studies. They each had about 140, 150,000 patients in them. And they looked at their LDL. It was, it was nearly 50-50 that some had high LDL and some had low normal LDL cholesterol that had a heart attack. So there wasn't even really an association one way or the other. And one of them followed up for two years and they found that the patients, of course, they were counseled. You have to get your cholesterol down. This is the only thing that's, that's going to help you. And in fact, the ones that lowered their LDL cholesterol or, you know, maintained a low cholesterol, they were two times as likely to have died before, you know, during follow-up in the next two years. So it's possibly that this is protective as well. And I think it probably is, you know, this is a molecule that our body makes. Cholesterol is very important to us. We're made out of cholesterol. I looked at, I mean, uh, eighth grade biology, I remember seeing that in the textbook that our lipid bilayer and our cell membranes is cholesterol. And I remember thinking, I was like, how can cholesterol be bad for us? We, we literally are made out of cholesterol. And uh, so many of our hormones, our bile, our brain, you know, about 20% cholesterol, myelin sheath, or, you know, um, insulating our axons uh, are largely uh, cholesterol and saturated fat. And so, you know, the idea that this is that this is bad for us is, is a bit hard to swallow at first. And then you look at the history and say, like, OK, this was all made up in the first place. So this was never a problem in the first place. Like, so, so people saying, well, but 
okay, they may have lied, they may have doctored these evidence. Oh, but I bet you it still is. Based on what? You know, we've, we've based all of this on those fraudulent studies that we really haven't given up on. And so I think if you have any, any, you know, any, any sort of idea that that's based or predicated on false information, you have to throw it out and start over. And so when you, when you do that, I just don't think the evidence is there uh, that LDL is, uh, LDL cholesterol is harmful to us. You brought up the Framingham study. And if you look at the Framingham study, there've been subsequent analyses where they stratified that relationship between LDL, cholesterol, and cardiovascular disease by HDL, which is a metric that may give us some indication of insulin sensitivity. And, and the relationship between LDL and, and uh, cardiovascular disease essentially disappears. And we see this repeatedly. This was my one of the main points I made with Dr. Allo was that in any situation in which LDL cholesterol versus cardiovascular disease is stratified by a metric that gives you any indication of insulin resistance, you see the relationship between LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease essentially vanish. In some mm. studies, there's still a small correlation there that's probably connected with toxins in the environment, smoking, heavy metals, and other things that can damage the endothelium. But if people really want a detailed discussion, I would recommend you listen to that podcast between me and Dr. Allo. We also talked about seed oils in that one. But yeah, I, I think that you're totally right. It's interesting that you bring up the sugar thing. Let's get into sugar a little bit now. I don't want to spend too much time here, but it is interesting that sort of there's been this war between processed sugar, and I'm saying that intentionally, and, and fat for a long time. And when I wrote the carnivore code, I looked at literature that said that fructose was harmful for humans. And I thought, okay, sugar is bad for humans because sugar is sucrose and sucrose is a disaccharide and that contains glucose and fructose. And that looks to be bad for humans. I mean, there's a pretty decent amount of evidence in humans that fructose in the form of processed sugars or high fructose corn syrup doesn't look to be great for us. Now, for me, it was a pretty interesting and eye-opening experience to have issues on a carnivore diet myself that were related to long-term ketosis and electrolyte issues, and then add sugar-containing foods into my diet, fruit and honey, which I would call whole food sources of sugar, and um, to see my labs improve in many ways. My fasting insulin stayed low, my fasting blood sugar went down, my A1C went down, my muscle cramps went away, my testosterone went up, my sleep got better. And at the same time, I was kind of looking at the research and I didn't really believe the research when I first saw it because it sounds kind of hand wavy or, or it sounds like voodoo. But I, I think that there's something, my perspective, and you may disagree with me on this and we can talk about it. When I look at the research on fruit, and there's an interesting amount of research on fruit and even fruit juice in humans, they appear to be unequivocally beneficial. Um, I know that even the likes of Robert Lustig have argued that fruit may not be bad for humans because it contains fiber, and that may mitigate some of the absorption of fructose. But when I, when I go further, and I just released a couple of weeks ago a podcast on fruit juice, and so I looked at all the research I could find on fruit juice, you know, watermelon juice, pomegranate juice, cherry juice, grape juice, orange juice. All of these have minuscule amounts of fiber, and they seem to be pretty beneficial for humans with, with outcomes that show decreased oxidized LDL in vitro, which is really the only way to study oxidation of LDL, improved endothelial function, 
um, decreased products of oxidation in humans, decreased inflammatory markers, certain prostaglandins. Um, the list kind of goes on and on. I was kind of like, I was kind of wide-eyed thinking like, okay, um, even fruit juice looks to be beneficial to humans in so many ways. And I'm happy to share the studies. I think we can put the studies on the screen and the YouTube corroborating all of that. I mean, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll be curious for your response. Watermelon juice is so interesting to me specifically because there are multiple studies in which they give people glucose. So they'll do an oral glucose tolerance test, an OGTT, and they'll infuse glucose and make people hyperglycemic, essentially with a quote unquote processed sugar. Um, and, and you see micro and macrovascular dysfunction of the endothelium when you do that. But when you give people watermelon juice along with an OGTT, it attenuates all of the negative effects of the OGTT in turn at the level of the endothelium. So it's really interesting mm -hmm. that like, I mean, I think you could even make an argument that fruit juice is even like an antidote to processed sugar. I, I don't think processed mm -hmm. sugar is good for humans, but I wonder, I mean, do you think it's possible that, that we are conflating research with processed sugar and high fructose corn syrup with, with fruit and saying that fruit or fruit juice is bad for humans based on research done with processed sugars, which don't really behave the same way in the human body? Or do you think I'm off base with that, that premise? No, no, no. I, I think, I think that I, I sort of, I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. You know, I, I do agree with you that, 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 is certainly different than processed sugar and, and straight sugar on its own, 100%, and, and you know, high fructose corn syrup and sucrose and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think that there are certainly added benefits to even fruit juice. I think the fiber, you know, as, as Lustig said, probably does confer a benefit. You know, you, as he speaks about in his book, Metabolical, you it, eating um, uh soluble and insoluble fibers sort of make a bit of a lattice structure and that blocks about 30% of the absorption in, in your intestines. So if you're eating things that aren't really good for you, I think fiber is a great idea, you know, but if you're not eating things that, that aren't good for you, then you probably don't want that because that's going to cause malabsorption. So that can be a benefit if you're, you're and, that, and that's some of the things too, some of the studies looking at fiber being a benefit, they talk about how this stabilizes blood sugar. I'm like, well, if you're absorbing 30% less sugar, then obviously your blood sugar is going to be improved. And from that, from that standpoint, uh, as far as fruit is concerned, I was talking to, to Dr. Gary Fetke about this actually. And, and he was saying that there was actually a lot of things in fruit, you know, vitamin C and other sorts of, you know, vitamins and minerals, which actually mitigate the effects of fructose in the body. And he's done, and he's, he's very much against fructose in general. He's, he's very, very against sugar. Um, and, uh, and, but he, he says himself that it, uh, when he's looked into the literature and he's looked into things that there absolutely are things in fruits that mitigate that effect of fructose. So I, I definitely agree with that. Um, the one thing is though, is, you know, sometimes, you know, with, with studies on, on juice or whatever, I always sort of wonder, okay, are they adding juice into, you know, processed food diet or you know, how are they, how are they managing that? Is that conferring a benefit to people that are eating? you know, largely a junk diet, is that going to, are you going to get, see this, see the same benefits on someone like you or I, who are eating quite a lot of meat? Is that going to, is that going to give the same benefit? You know, so, you know, seeing if that's translatable to, to our populations. 
Um, I mean, there have been studies in mice uh, done by Coca-Cola that showed that, oh, well, you know, sucrose and you know, natural cane sugar is actually really good for you. And you lose weight if you're giving, giving these mice a whole bunch of Coca-Cola. And it's just like, OK, um, I've got I'm going to have problems with <laughs> with a Coca-Cola doing a study saying that Coca-Cola is, is beneficial for weight loss. Um, so, you know, that could be that could be something too, you know, depending on who's doing the study for fruit. Um, the main thing that I have of issue with fructose is I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, Lustig's work as well, and I've, I've found it to be pretty compelling. And then, you know, like you say, you know, if you find that you're, you're having benefit in your life and you're eating a certain way, I, I think that people should definitely do that. And if you found that you, you've improved in a lot of ways, you should definitely do that. I haven't had those same issues. I haven't found that my, you know, I actually just did a, a set of uh, bloods sort of coming up on six years. And um, I haven't seen them yet because I'm, I'm on vacation, but my colleague at the practice, he got them and, and he just said, hey, you know, I see that you ordered some bloods on yourself. And I was like, yeah, how do they look? He's like, yeah, everything's looking great. So I haven't gone through those yet, but according to him, everything's looking good. And my bloods three years ago were all in very good ranges as well. And so I didn't have issues with my hormones. Uh, well, no, I, I don't even use salt anymore at all. And uh, I don't get oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've spoken to a number of, long-term carnivores, you know, people in like zero carb health and zero neuron health Facebook groups, they've been doing this for, I think some of them around 20 years now. And, and that old guard people are saying that, yeah, you actually don't want salt. It can actually be addictive and cause you to overeat just like, you know, processed sugar could. I've, I haven't really looked too closely into that, but from my own taste perspective, I've always told people just salt to taste, you know, and your, your body can tell you. And I've just naturally just wanted a bit less and a bit less salt. And now I, I just sort of prefer the taste without salt, even a little bit of salt, just say it tastes a bit too salty for me. So I'm still going by taste. I'm still just salting to taste. I'm not avoiding it. I'm just, you know, I don't feel I, I really need it. I just, I like the taste of the salt. So I did a, I did a, um, a podcast video talking about, you know, is, is ketosis harmful? There's a guy named Georgie Dinkoff who went on with Dr. McCall and they talked about the different you know, problems with being in ketosis long-term. And so, you know, I went through some of the literature as well with a guy named Richard Smith. And, you know, we found other studies that sort of had, had uh, sort of a countering view. One that looked at people in ketosis for two years, for 24 months, and they found that their cortisol actually stayed the same. Their thyroid function stayed the same. And other markers uh, were either improved or stayed the same. And at least for me, I've, I've noticed that, you know, I feel perfectly good doing what I'm doing. And so I don't need to add that in. Um, I have seen people, especially with people that have been carb addicted, sugar addicted, when they start eating, uh, you know, fruit and honey, that that can trigger those sorts of that, that sort of addictive compulsion that they've had previously in their eating and they can sort of go down a bad path and some of them start eating a bit more fruit a bit more honey and a lot more honey and a lot more fruit and then they start slipping into all the processed garbage and i've spoken to you know one gentleman i spoke to a while ago he said that it, it started with that and he just started getting more and more fruit and honey and then he was you know six months later he was back to drinking soda and eating pizza on the couch and he had sort of lost all the ground that he had gained and so i'm i'm very I'm, I'm 100% in your, in your camp as far as people should self-experiment and do what feels right for them. And, uh, and I encourage people to just eat more meat. And that's what I want them to do. I don't think everyone has to do exactly what I do. 
through self-experimentation and, and my reading of the literature, I think that just eating fatty meat is what's best for me. And I've noticed that in my body as well. And I just want to encourage people to try different things, open their mind, like you say, and, and try to experiment with themselves and just not be afraid of fat, not be afraid of meat. And if they want to eat vegetables, fine. But I don't think that people should be eating vegetables because they think they have to. They want to, and they feel that that's benefiting them, go for it. But, you know, I don't want people eating that sort of stuff because they feel they have to, because I don't feel that they have to. And so just trying to educate them that way. But if they, if they want to, I, I know a lot of people that include fruits and vegetables or, or yeah, even fruits and vegetables, but, you know, fruit and honey and things like that. And that's fine if that's what they want to do. I get a bit concerned when people have had serious carb addictions, serious weight issues, um, reincorporating that sort of thing, because I've, I've seen them slip down and get quite addicted to carbs again and, and really, uh, you know, lose all the ground that they've gained. Um, I think that, you know, having been myself basically in ketosis for a long time, and now, you know, have I been in ketosis all the time? I don't know. I haven't checked my ketones. I have no idea. That's you what know? I was going to ask I, you. I check my HDL. Yeah, no, I see. Yeah, so I don't, I don't check my ketones and, and things like that all the time. I, I go by first principles. You know, I, I think that this is really how we evolved to eat. If you think about you know, the Inuit or people during an ice age, they really didn't have anything else except meat to eat anyway. And so they had to live generation after generation after generation just eating meat predominantly. You know, maybe they had some other stuff as well, but it's hard to Orions. find. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, 100 percent. You know, and, and you know, they would have. But but animals, you know, and Animal you know, when foods, you're in yeah. The, yeah, when you're in the Arctic Circle or you're in the North during an ice age, really not much else to eat. And so, you know, just being in that state of ketosis, I think there's, I think that, that eating meat is our natural state. And I think that, you know, we see this uh, in, in different populations where they're living generationally. And I've been just eating meat for six years and five years in my early twenties. And I didn't run into any of these problems. So I, I, that, you know, lends me to think, well, maybe there's something else, maybe something else that, that you and I are doing differently that have affected us differently. Um, because I haven't had that, uh, that issue. One point that, that some people make like, uh, um, you know, Bart K is that, you know, if you eat a large bowl, I, 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 I don't know, know who that is, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, and, and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, sorry that he, uh, you know, gets a bit vitriolic in his, um, in his videos, but, one thing that one thing that he did say was that if you're eating a large bolus of protein, that that could transiently raise your your insulin levels and kick you out of ketosis, and uh, and that that could be very beneficial. It could be. I mean, again, I've never checked my ketones or my blood sugar, HbA1c. Yes, I've checked that, and that's always that's always been good. But I just let my body do what it's supposed to do. If I'm eating a big, and I generally do do that, I generally eat a, just a, one big massive meal a day, and that's what. I feel best doing. And, you know, if I'm in ketosis that whole time or I'm in and out of ketosis, I'm happy with that. I don't, I don't really mind. I just trust in my body. I'm giving my body the inputs that it needs and it's going to do what it needs with that. Yeah. A couple of points on that. Um, so, you know, the Inuit are almost never in ketosis. There's actually research looking at mm -hmm. the Inuit and they're not in ketosis. And then interestingly, so there's a couple of papers that I was looking at 
And I'll quote from the papers. They say that traditional Inuit diets derive approximately 50% of their calories from fat, 30 to 35 from protein, and 15 to 20% of their calories from carbohydrates. I'll put the study up on the screen for people if they're watching on YouTube, and I'll quote it. 15 to 20% of the calories are carbohydrates in the form of glycogen from the raw meat. Um, and that's been, that's been shown like multiple times that uh, significant amounts of carbohydrates are found in raw meat and raw liver, especially when they're eaten fresh and uh, by the Inuit. So it's interesting to think that I think the Inuit, many people in the Inuit communities who are in those sort of extreme environments also possess polymorphisms that sort of prevent them from going into ketosis. This is kind of an interesting thing, but the Inuit are not in ketosis very much at all. And I think that if you're eating a lot of raw meat, you're getting a lot of carbohydrates in that. So I wonder for you, if you're, if you're in ketosis very often. Um, and I also yeah. wonder if some people deal with ketosis differently than other people. For me, I was checking my ketones pretty regularly and I was, my ketones were anywhere from 0.8 millimolar to 1.5 millimolar. So most people would say I was in ketosis and my electrolyte issues were profound. Um, and I've, I, I guess not everyone gets these issues, but I have seen and worked with, with a lot of people who have developed profound electrolyte issues on long-term ketosis. And so it's interesting when I looked at my labs, my testosterone was going down. My T3 was really low. My T4 was sort of normal, but am I looking at my reverse T3 was going up. So there's, I mean, it, it's interesting because if you look at the evidence, it's kind of mixed. There's definitely evidence and I can show the study that if you look at obese men, when you put them in ketosis, the cortisol metabolism changes pretty significantly, and meaning that they, the 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1 goes up, meaning that they don't, they don't really, they make more cortisol and they recycle less cortisol. So they're just, the cortisol metabolism is changing at least acutely. And I believe that study, let me check, I have it pulled up here. I believe that study was uh, multiple weeks in length. Um, in terms of uh, how long they were looking at these people. This was a four-week ad libitum, high-fat, low-carb versus uh, four-week ad libitum. I'll show the study actually so you can see it. It's interesting to me that the cortisol metabolism changes over the course of four weeks. Now, you see here in obese men, um, cortisol regeneration increased and reduces cortisol inactivation by A-ring reductases in the liver when they do this low fat, high carb, and this is 4% carbohydrates. So when I look at the literature, I see, I see studies like this that say, Hmm, like there, there are, there is some evidence that at least in some people, long-term ketosis can negatively affect, well, I would say moderate term ketosis, four weeks of ketosis, at least in that study, anything over a day, perhaps we would consider long-term um, can affect cortisol metabolism negatively, can affect thyroid hormones, can affect all sorts of things. And then on the flip side, if you look at athletes, I mean, this is research that I'm sure that you're familiar with. Athletes on higher carbohydrate diets have improved free testosterone to cortisol ratios after bouts of intense exercise. And they have improved metrics of immune function after intense exercise when they include carbohydrates in their diet. So I guess I'm just... I'm just not sure that that ketosis is benign for all humans all the time. And I think that your point is well taken around the food addiction. I haven't really figured out how to navigate that for people yet. I think that's a small number of people, but it's a very valid point that for some people, not including carbohydrates in any form 
maybe what they need to do while they're recovering from some sort of psychological food addiction because it can trigger them. But I also want people to know that if they're not including carbohydrates, and I hear this all the time, and they're having issues with muscle cramps or sleep or any of these sorts of problems or thyroid or being cold, um, that, that including carbohydrates, even in the form of fruit juice and fruit and honey, at least from my perspective, is something that's both evolutionarily consistent and, and pretty benign for most humans. Now, maybe there's a few different case studies in there with, uh, with people with food addiction. And certainly there are benefits to ketosis in people with profound neurological disease. Um, but uh, I think that, mm. I think that I've, I've found it important in my work to let people know that it's okay to reincorporate carbohydrates if they're not doing well on only meat. And then we can talk about organs in a moment because actually let's just talk about that now. Um, when I, when I look at the, the Inuit, um, when I was doing the research on the Inuit, I also found research and I'll, I'll quote to you, um, that, uh, they, they eat berries. So they eat, I guess it depends on the season, the black crowberry, the dwarf blueberry, the cloudberry, they eat some roots, um, and that they eat livers of all of the animals they consume, except the white polar bear. So this is from an article, Clinical and Other Observations of Canadian Eskimos in the Eastern Arctic. And he says, when an Eskimo catches a walrus, he immediately opens the stomach and eats all of the clams, which have some glycogen, which is carbohydrates. He relishes the skin of the whale and the narwhal, both of which are rich in glycogen, and he eats enormous quantities of meat. The Eskimos eat livers of practically all animals, except that of the white bear. These are rich in glycogen. I think you and I both know about polar bear liver. So when I yeah, when I yeah. look at when I look at hunter-gatherer cultures like the Hadza, who I visited in person, and even the Inuit, I mean, I've never found a culture of humans free living that don't eat the organs. Um, so I just I think that it's important for people to include organs on their diet. Earlier you mentioned that you're eating eggs with your meat, and I think that that may mitigate some of the lack of organs, at least from my perspective, sometimes, not, maybe not all the time. Maybe I, yeah. But I think that, uh, I mean, even Michaela Peterson was recently saying that, um, that she checked her folate level and it was, it was low, you know? So Michaela, I think has returned to eating organs. So, I mean, what's yeah. your perspective on, on, on organs? Um, because I think that they're pretty critical and evolutionarily consistent when we're eating animal foods. Well, I think, I think, you know, just to, just to, you know, touch on what you were saying before, you know, that, you know, you can get glycogen, you get these sorts of things and whether or not things are in ketosis or not, I still think that that means we're getting everything we need from the meat and, and glycogen is certainly going to be a part of that. I have seen, uh, the studies you were talking about or, or some studies referencing the fact that, that, um, Inuits don't uh, seem to be in ketosis. They've sort of you know, lower levels of ketones and things like that, which I think is perfectly fine. You know, I, my, I'm probably in a similar position. I eat, I eat cooked meat, but I also eat like seared meat and, and insides generally raw, just purely preference. You know, I just think it tastes better. And, um, you know, so that could be influencing things as well. Um, as far as, as organs, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen all of the studies, you know, that you're looking at. Um, but I have, you know, seen, you know, people like Stefanson, um, you know, wrote the, the book Fat of the Land, who I'm sure we're all very familiar with. He he made the case that that they knew it didn't didn't eat much organs at all. They mostly just ma ate the the muscle meat and fat. Um, I eat some organs sometimes, but I, I predominantly eat 
uh, muscle meat and fat. So I think I've had, I think I've had liver probably six or seven times in the last sort of 10 years. And, and for me, that seems to be fine. And, you know, you mentioned Michaela Peterson and folate. I've seen a couple of people have low folate on just skeletal muscle meat and fat. And for those people, I say, you definitely need to incorporate things like, like liver. Um, for me, my, I, I did check my folate this time and, uh, and that was good. And so I don't seem to need, I don't seem to need that. There are certainly people with like the MTHFR gene that are not going to be methylating uh, folate as well. They're certainly going to need uh, to be uh, on, on the organ train. And so I think that's something that people should uh, be aware of and that, you know, they should get themselves checked out and you should check your vitamins and minerals and, and, uh, and hormones and all these sorts of things. You should check those things to make sure that nothing's going on. And if your folate is low, uh, then you should definitely incorporate organs. I think that um, they're fantastic. They're They're extremely nutrient dense. I think that they're very, very beneficial in a lot of ways. I think that the only, only thing I caution people in is that they are, because they are so nutrient dense and like, you know, the, the polar bears, you don't eat polar bears because they have so much vitamin A that they'll kill you. And so if people are eating, uh, a massive amount of organs that they should just be worried about, you know, building up of, you know, vitamin A or copper or other sorts of things that, that may be detrimental. I do remember seeing reference in, um, the literature to, uh, hypervitaminosis A causing uh, suppression of TSH, so thyroid stimulating hormone. And so if people are eating an abundance of this and they're getting too high levels of, of vitamin A, that could affect their body negatively. And so that's that's all I caution people. And I'm 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 happy with people eating organs. I'm happy to eat organs. I actually uh, just had liver last week and just sort of cooked it, uh, seared it on the outside and sort of raw on the inside tasted way better than cooking it all the way through. So uh, I actually enjoyed that. And so I'm happy to eat it um, when it's available and when it's around. I don't, uh, I don't eat a large amount of it though. And when I talk to people about organs, I just basically say perfectly fine to have them. Just don't go crazy. You know I mean? If you're, if we're thinking about our, our hunter gatherer past or really our hunter past, you know, we're taking down a seal, we're taking down a gazelle, we're taking down Buffalo or whatever. And, you know, we've got a lot of meat, you know, if we take down a bison or a cow, this is, you know, hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds or over a thousand pounds anyway, of skeletal meat and fat. And, you know, it's got a, a large liver, but it's still only one liver. And so, you know, try to have that in proportion. So that's, that's my thoughts on organs. I think they're great, but I do try to caution people to have it in proportion with the rest of the animal. So the large majority of what uh, people would be eating if they're hunting out in the wild is still going to be the muscle meat and fat. Yeah. Polar bear liver is really interesting. It has over a hundred times mm. more vitamin A than ruminant liver. So mm. it's basically like one yeah. ounce, one ounce of cow's liver or one ounce, excuse me, of polar bear liver would be equal to 100 ounces, a hundred, like, you know, we're talking mm. like one ounce of polar bear liver would be like eating seven pounds of cow's liver. So mm-hmm. I think that most, what I recommend for people is about a half an ounce to an ounce of liver per day. Um, heart is basically muscle meat and mm-hmm. is great because it has coenzyme Q10 mm-hmm. and a little more taurine, which we know is beneficial for longevity. And so I think people can probably eat as much heart as they want. Beyond liver and heart, I think most people aren't eating many organs. I think testicles great to eat from time to time. Mm-hmm. A few ounces here or there is probably great. 
Um, if you can get brain and you want to eat brain, brain is definitely something the Hadza ate. It's treasured, mm-hmm. you know, eat some brain every once in a while. That's great. But yeah, I think that um, when I see people eating like a pound of liver every day, I think that's maybe a little bit too much, but I also want people to not fear mm-hmm. liver and the vitamin A. I think there's probably far, far more cases of vitamin A deficiency in our culture and society than there is vitamin A toxicity. And I've never seen vitamin A toxicity from eating cow's liver. I think that a lot of the vitamin A toxicity people have Mm -hmm. is from vitamin A palmitate supplements, et cetera. So who knows? Um, But yeah, I think Mm -hmm. organs are valuable and I see these people eating them consistently. And the Inuit, I mean, I guess I know that the Stephenson, Billimer Stephenson did say that that, but then I found so many conflicting accounts of the Inuit saying they're eating liver of everything mm. and they're eating the skin and everything. And they're just not eating the polar bear liver. So it's interesting to think about how they possibly figured out that polar bear liver was not to be eaten, but that's the one thing that you probably shouldn't eat. Yeah. I think it's, I think humans probably shouldn't eat carnivore liver in general. Um, I think that probably yeah. if you looked at a lion's liver or a, a cheetah's liver or a, a tiger or a, a mountain lion's liver, I would be curious how much vitamin A is in there. And I bet that the vitamin A in a carnivore animal's liver is quite high. But if you're eating the liver of a mm-hmm. of an herbivorous animal, like a chicken or a cow or something, I guess a seal is is carnivorous, but the Inuit eat their livers too. So who knows? Mm-hmm. There's, I think there's something to the polar bear just accumulates so much vitamin A in the liver. So it's just interesting. Yeah. Thank you for talking about yeah. that stuff because I think that we we are so aligned on so many things that it's just been it's been awesome to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been great. And it's interesting to talk about the places yeah, where definitely. we differ a little bit. Uh, I think that's the kind of stuff that makes it interesting for people to see the different views. Um, but yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. And I hope we get to hang out soon in person. And I hope you, uh, you know, I hope you get to, uh, I hope you do keep doing the work down there in Australia, convincing your colleagues that, that LDL cholesterol is not bad and keep converting mm-hmm. those physicians to carnivore, bro. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it, and thank you for having me on, man. I, I like you know, I've I've said before, you know, people always say just oh, you got to talk to Saladino and talk about this. Like, I agree with almost every single thing that that you say, and it's just like you know, we have you know a couple of things there, you know, that that you know you like adding in you know fruit and honey, and you know, and you had you had health issues and you needed to address them, and I think that's the right thing to do. I never noticed those those health issues in myself, and so you know, I didn't didn't think that I needed to do it. So I. I thought maybe there's something else going on. And, uh, but no, I love, I, you know, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. And, and, uh, and again, like we agree on so many things. I think that, you know, the, the message you're pushing out that we're all pushing out that you can be healthy, just eating a natural human diet is so important because so many people are sick and they're beholden on the medical care system. They're getting on more and more medications. They're getting fatter and sicker and unhealthier and unhappier. And that, that doesn't need to be that way. And I think, you know, a very important thing is, is what you rail on about a lot. And what I do as well is that plants have are living organisms and they are able to protect themselves just like every other living organism. And their main defense and deterrent is chemical protection and defense. And, People are just not respecting plants as much as they should. They are, they are, they are absolutely more than capable of defending themselves or else they would be extinct. And so us just thinking like, oh yeah, you can just eat any, any old plant you want. They're all good for you. I think you're really taking uh, a very serious risk with your health. And, um, and I think a lot of people are suffering for that. So, you know, thank you for, for pushing that message out there as well. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, man, it's a little tricky. I think people push back on the vegetables all the time. And I say, all right, if you're thriving, yep. eat your vegetables, man. I think you're going to feel better without them, but do what you want to do. So I think it's really cool. Yeah. It's just good that we get people thinking. And I, I just, I'm so grateful that there are doctors like you in the medical system that are thinking outside of the box and that are really interested in, in what's causing illness and how to correct it for people, because that's what we need more of in the system. So thanks again, man. And I look forward to chatting with you more soon. Yeah, man. Yeah, looking forward to it.